Cue the violins. Once a week, two middle-aged Jews meet at the intersection of fascinating news and personal angst. It's old media meets even older media, with reveals Phil Bronstein and Dave Pell of Next Draft. This is What Hurts, worrying about news since 2015. Okay, we're back here in the fabulous studios of Emeryville for another edition of What Hurts with two guys who, if we have good feelings about the news for more than four hours, we seek immediate medical attention. I'm Phil Bronstein, and my partner here is Dave Pell, who's staring at me totally bewildered at the moment. Yeah, that's that's my vibe. So let's get started right away with our... <laughs> Speed round. Don't waste time. This is where you get to humiliate me totally because I'm a journalist and I'm supposed to know everything that's going on in the news. And it turns out I know nothing. Well, I pick out the most silly news. So really winning is losing in this case. But let's play another round of what's behind the tabs where I give you a somewhat obscure headline, next draft style, and you try to guess what the story I'm talking about. And if you do, or even if you don't, then we exchange some incredibly smart and witty banter that would make an NPR live audience absolutely go crazy. Do I have a choice? Here we go. Okay. Item number one. Yeah. What's behind tab number one? Yeah. All these are going to be easy this week. Behind tab number one. <laughs> you've just set me up. Now you've totally set me up. Well, I'm sorry. They'll be easy for the listening audience. <laughs> Here we go. Item number one. What's behind tab number one, Phil? I can bring home the bacon. Fry it up in a pan, but that's where it ends. Well, bacon, it turns out, is a carcinogen, as if we didn't know that everything that tastes good is a carcinogen. And there's a huge controversy about it because the meat industry shockingly is upset. The meat industry actually was the nickname that I uh, gave my college dorm room. But yes, this is the news <laughs> that processed meats cause you, you, cancer. You, you meant your roommate or the room? No, really. I didn't okay. really. It was a private parts joke that didn't make sense because nothing happened for me in college. <laughs> but we did learn that processed We're meats may cause cancer. What was interesting here is the uh, World Health Organization that came out with the news was not unanimous in their decision. And People followed up with articles that saying compared to other carcinogens, it's really not that dangerous. For example, smoking cigarettes is about 2,500 times as dangerous as eating a piece of bacon. So going with that math, if you smoke bacon. It's not good. <laughs> but before we leave this topic, I think we should tell people about the hidden risk. And that That's is, of course, the risk of secondhand bacon. <laughs> that was easy. I'm going to turn the tables on you. Please do. I have a couple of headlines because I'm tired of you making me look really as even dumber than I am. Here's the first headline. For okay, you. give it. Prince in a tube. Prince in a tube. Um. Hmm. I mean, come on. I've got no idea. No idea. All I right. really don't. All right, ding. We have a ding. So the eldest son of Michael Jackson responded to a tweet that was a nasty tweet that he wasn't the biological son of Michael Jackson, and he said. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I would, I, I would have expected that from Blanket Jackson. Who's the other one, right? There's I'm another not sure. One. Yeah, there are three of them. Anyway, so, okay, ding on that one. Now, would you like to should we go back and forth? Because I got one more for you. Yeah, let's, let's hold off on yours and do a few that, um, that are somebody good. might be aware of out okay. there in the listening public. You, know, okay. you, you talk about Michael Jackson. You think the public, general public, doesn't read that stuff? Yeah. Where they're reading about congressional it's debates? It's true. He's only been dead for about a half a decade. Let's move on. Yeah. What's behind tab number two? Vladimir is a cord cutter. 
Vladimir is a cord cutter. This isn't the Planned Parenthood story. <laughs> no, that would be <laughs> that would be really weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had to go to a Ukrainian clinic. No. Okay, I'm, all right, I'm not going to. Okay, Vla Vladimir is a cord cutter refers to the story that came out in the New York Times this week that the U.S. government is extremely concerned about Russian spy oh, ships cables. and subs that are, are have been milling around underwater. I believe that's a nautical term, milling around underwater near the undersea cables that connect our internet. And apparently our entire internet experience depends on these giant cables that are hidden in the deep sea. So they so the Russians just go down there with a hedge cutter and they just clip the tubes. You know, it might just be a, a torturing technique because even the threat of my Netflix getting turned off is enough for me to give whatever Vladimir wants. Well, just let me know what I'm missing, okay? Because I haven't figured out Netflix yet. Okay, I have one for you. Bring it. Dias Dementia. Dias Dementia. Yeah, it sounds, sounds Latin, but it's not. Um, does this have anything to do with our uh, discussion before we came on the air today? <laughs> I can't remember what that was, okay. but no. All right. All right. You, you give up? I do. Okay. Charlie Rangel. Does that, am I pronouncing him right? I would say Rangel, but you're probably right. I think it's one way or the other. Oh, we'll call, we'll say Rangel. On Thursday during the Clinton hearings, he went and sat down on the dais in the room where the Benghazi hearings were being held on the Republican side of the dais. And when people questioned him, he, he noted that the hearing was taking place in a room I'm reading from the story, normally used by the Powerful Ways and Means Committee. Rangel serves on the Ways and Means and was the chairman until 2010 when he stepped down after being censored for ethics violations. He says, that's my Ways and Means room, you know. So he just wandered in and sat down. These are our fine representatives of government. All yeah. right. Well, that actually leads perfectly into number three, which now will be incredibly easy for you to get. And that is tab number three is Congress goes to 11. Well, that would be 11 hours with Un Hillary Clinton unexpurgated. And Hillary Clinton came out ahead. It's like she actually made people feel sorry for her. It was unbelievable. I mean, the, the, what people said about her afterwards, that her amazing achievement was that she didn't have a complete fit at any time during those 11 hours, which I could never have done. I'm convinced there's always the debate about is waterboarding torture. I'm pretty sure waterboarding is torture, but I'm not 100% sure. But I am 100% sure that appearing in front of a House Select Committee is torture. I couldn't even watch it for more than three minutes. But you know what? She, she looked disgusted. So she had that sort of condescending, disgusted look on her face. And I have a feeling that that gave her some degree of satisfaction that the Republicans, certainly on the panel, could not overcome her look of derision and condescension. Well, I know the feeling here having to do that I'm every week here right with you, I'm looking at you right now. Bill. Yes, that's right. All right. Let's go to number four, tab number four. Okay. Your job or your life? Your job or your life? Okay. Is this supposed to be one of the easy ones? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Your Job or Your Life was a story actually that just came out very recently. The Washington Post and others reported it. I'm a journalist it. from newspapers. Okay. So if it, it came out like a week ago, I'm, I'm on it. Right. Yes. It'll, it'll arrive at your doorstep in the next few days. It was a Harvard and Stanford study that actually tried to quantify the amount of your life that is taken away from you by your job. And they had to, they adjusted for different factors like your race and your education level and what industry you're in. And they basically said that in most of the 
sort of bad cases for the average American, your job is taking about three years off of your life. Is that that's it? Three years? Yeah, it really doesn't sound that bad, does not, it? Not, not if you're getting paid. Yeah. Of course, if you're getting paid seven dollars an hour, you know, maybe not. But all right, right. we're not getting paid seven. We're getting paid nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This okay. well, we're getting we're losing about three years an episode, so let's make this good. Okay. All right, number, Wait, five. number five. What's behind tab number five? Go buy your hiking boots somewhere else. Go buy your hiking boots somewhere else. God, I was just at REI yesterday. Well, then you're very close hot, to this hot, story. But REI, are they serving hot dogs there? No, the CEO of REI made big news this week by announcing that he would not open his stores on Black Friday. And he instead urged people to spend the time going outside. What was interesting is that, in a way, it was an easy decision for him because, number one, it builds on his brand, right? They're an outdoorsy brand. So if they tell you, go take a hike, that's not necessarily bad, <laughs> right? They're not a public company. So if they lose a few bucks or don't gain a few bucks one day, it's also not a big deal. But the third and bigger reason, I think, seriously, who in their right mind wants to get a pair of hiking boots for Hanukkah? <laughs> it's like getting your wife a vacuum for her birthday, right? It's a horrible gift. Wait a minute. What's wrong with the vacuum? Uh, nothing. I, I don't mean to get personal. Okay, thanks. Uh, but just to spite the guy from REI for closing on Black Friday, my family and I actually had plans to hike to REI on Black Friday, and instead we're just going to sit at home, eat ice cream, and shop at Amazon. You know, I'm the other side of the fence because I did buy a pair of hiking boots at REI, though not on Black Friday. So... I'm not sure that I screwed this up or we're screwing this up already. Let's move on. This seems like a good time to walk away in our hiking boots. I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) You forgot to say please. Let's move on to the big issue of the week. All right, go ahead. All right, the big issue of the week is, is there a source code? Is there a source code? And what I mean by that is, is there a code by which we decide what information is worthy of sharing, either from the media to the consumers or from consumer to consumer? And there's been a bunch of stories that have come out in the last six months to a year and even before that that sort of fit into this general question that I've had. Uh, when is it okay to share information? When is it okay to disseminate information depending on where that information came from? And sort of the big example I'll use to open it up is the Snowden leaks, right? The Snowden leaks, it's a very clear-cut decision that somebody has to make. On one hand, you have a guy who's breaking the rules by sharing leaked information with the media. On the other hand, there's a certain amount of public good that comes with knowing, being aware of what information he is sharing. So you have to balance which is more important, his rule breaking and the potential damage it could do to the government or government employees or the public's right to know. So you weigh those two things back and forth and you make a decision. But I think that that decision is going to become a lot more important as we're always on and we're always under surveillance and people are always sharing our information whether we like it or not. Well, okay. So not to rain on your nobility parade about freedom of speech, which is essentially what we're talking about, and when does it apply and when might it not apply? The one-word answer is lawyers. Lawyers historically have told media outlets, not necessarily, a lawyer will never tell you don't do that usually in the world of media, but they will often say, if you do that, you will go to jail. Or if you do that, you will be sued for $100 million and lose. And so lawyers often help determine what information and the source of that information 
we are going to broadcast, publish, essentially give to the public. Now that you have the public able to get its own information, I mean, keep in mind that Snowden still came through tradi very traditional press outlets. They came through the New York Times. They came through the Guardian. So, you know, they went through that process. And, and while uh, Julian Assange, Assange did not go through that process, so he was much more like just put it out there. Once you get journalists involved, there is a process of filtering the information to say, okay, for instance, when I was the editor of The Examiner and The Chronicle, uh, if people were trying to pressure me not to publish something that I thought I needed to publish, there were three circumstances where I would agree to listen to them and perhaps be persuaded. One is if it involved kids. Two is if it involved an immediate threat to national security. And, you know, that would have to be the head of the CIA or the head of the FBI calling me up and making that case. And number three would be if someone's life was in imminent danger if you publish. Those are the circumstances under which I would listen to, to arguments about not publishing something that I otherwise thought we ought to publish. But, you know, I mean, in the Balco case, when I was editor of the Chronicle, we had two reporters, one of whom is here at CIR, Lance Williams, who were sentenced to 18 months in prison for not revealing the source of their, of their uh, stories on Balco, their grand jury stories on Balco. And they only got out of that 18 months in prison because another source came forward and outed their source, you know, separately. And so the judge threw out the case. But I mean, these are the kinds of things in traditional media that you consider. Consider the possibility that your reporters could go to jail. Many reporters have gone to jail. The Obama administration has been tougher than the Bush administration on going after the press and their sources. So, you know, I'm I'm obviously not the expert. I'm not an expert in anything, but I'm certainly not an expert in social media and, you know, sort of person-to-person -person dissemination of information, which when you do on social media means, you know, you're broadcasting to a lot of people, right? Right. Well, let's use that as a segue back to what I do, where I'm an indie publisher. I'm deciding what I publish or what I don't publish. In most cases, I'm not actually doing any original reporting. I'm just deciding what to share among what others have reported. So you have a case like Snowden, right? Snowden on the surface of it, I feel like, wow, that's, he's sharing something that really does benefit the public good. We should know how the NSA is operating, especially when it comes to keeping tabs on American citizens. But on the other hand, I look at the way that story rolled out, and basically uh, the team behind that story rolled that story out in bits, giant headlines over the course of two or three years. So if it was so important for us to have this information and so urgent for us to have it, then why was that strategy to sort of roll it out and get the most bang for their buck? Bang more for the buck. That? You just said it. Bang yeah. for the buck. So, and, and by the way, so when you reprint that stuff or republish that stuff, let's say on Next Draft, do you consider – I mean they might be deciding, the Guardian might be deciding, the Times might be deciding – that it's worth putting someone's life at risk. Or may, maybe they don't really know if it's worth some, putting someone's life at risk, but they're being told by the government, you publish this, you're putting someone's life at risk. They publish it anyway. You're not in a position to know who their sources are. You're not in a position to know, to have the discussion. So that to me is a big difference between, you know, people who publish socially, as you do, and media organizations who go through this or should go through this whole process. Right. I think 
you know, I think in some cases for me, and the Snowden story is so huge, everybody's covering it. I don't think it really makes a difference if I do or not. But there are cases where there's been leaked information that was being covered all over the media where I totally refused to share it in any way. And one example of that is the Sony leaks. Sony was hacked probably by somebody either in Russia or China, according to people I know that know more about tech than I do. But whoever it was, it was in the broad classification of the bad guys hacked Sony, stole an incredible amount of information over a long period of time. Was there any public good in that information? There was only one piece of public good that came out of the Sony hacks. The one piece of public good was that corporations do not protect their information enough, and they need to get better about that. Now, I didn't think that that information should have been stolen, and I didn't think that anybody's emails getting hacked as part of the Sony hack or personal exchanges with other employees or coworkers is any of our business. The information was stolen illegally. It doesn't have any public good. Therefore, I didn't link to a single story that mentioned any of the Sony leaks in that, during that whole period. So did you feel that you had enough information to make an intelligent decision or make a decision about whether to publish or not or whether to link or not? Well, in that case, it's really more of an ethical decision as opposed to the earlier discussion we were having where it's a life and death decision. In the Sony case, it really wasn't about anybody getting killed necessarily, but it was about people potentially getting humiliated or losing their jobs or being perceived as racist or being perceived as terrible in some way where information that we used to share privately behind closed doors uh, was out of reach. Now it's suddenly one or two clicks away for a really good hacker. Well, here's another thing about the, the Sony leak. No one cared. At the end of the day, what changed? I mean, actually, people have made that argument about a lot of the Snowden leaks, too. The government's saying, you know, this could get people killed or maybe has gotten people killed. The other side of the argument is, at the end of the day, no one cares about, you know, derogatory conversations that our Secretary of State had about the president of another country. No one really cares and nothing changed. And there was a story, there was a headline that I loved just this week about a confrontation, potential confrontation between the U.S. and China over the, I think, the Spratly Islands, they're called. And the headline was, the U.S. just challenged China in the South China Sea and dot, 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 nothing happened, <laughs> which I thought was a fabulous headline. I just enjoyed that. And, you know, a lot of, for some of this stuff, it seems at the moment when we publish it, like it's really critical. And then, you know, with the, with the sort of progress of time over a period of days and weeks, it suddenly, we suddenly realize, you know, eh. Maybe the New York Times should change their tagline, all the news that's fit to print, dot, 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 and nothing ever happens. <laughs> or just meh. Meh. Well, Captain, I think it's only fair to tell you I've been to outside agencies. I'm going to go to more if I have to. What outside agencies? Holy mother of God. Frank, we wash our own laundry around here. Now, you could be brought up in charges for I this. I always thought so, but the reality you is that we do not wash our own laundry. It just gets dirty. You are in trouble. I don't care if I'm in trouble. I don't care who gets it anymore, including myself. Because if I have to go to outside agencies to get somebody to hear my story, agency. well, where am I going to go? You hear me, sir, Frank? Stay away from where me. Where am I going to go? You just wait until you hear from me. I've been waiting for a year and a half. What are you talking about? That's not enough. I'll get back. But where am I going to go? It's my life, you fuck! Before we move on, one question I wanted to ask you as it relates to uh, this topic of when it's okay to share information, especially when it might be classified, is the interview that you did with the man who shot Osama bin Laden. It was a huge story in Esquire, an incredible story, one-on-one -on -one exclusive. Uh, Phil wrote 
a while ago, and we'll link to this on our page, whathurts.fm, next to this episode. But you had a decision to make there. How did you come in contact with the shooter? How did you get him to talk? And more importantly, did you have to weigh whether or not you wanted to share certain details or not share certain details? Because by the very act of talking to you, by being a SEAL who's sharing information from a activity that he was involved in, he's already breaking a rule. He's already breaking an important code in the military. So how did you decide in that situation when you experienced the decision personally? Well, he made the decision to talk. And there was a lot of discussion that later happened around stories of other SEALs that the White House itself, the White House cooperated with Mark Bowden, the the Black Hawk Down author who wrote a book about the hunt for bin Laden, cooperated extensively with the filmmakers of Zero Dark Thirty. And so there was a feeling generally, I think, among SEALs I spoke with in any case, that the government had already leaked a lot of this information. And so I think there was a feeling that the bar was lower in terms of what their responsibility was to keep quiet, to keep secret, as opposed to what they could talk about. There was also a sensitivity to not talking about things that were, quote, operational, things that might give away something of your operations and how you conduct them to the enemy. Well, so much was known about the the raid on bin Laden's compound, despite what the New York Times Sunday Magazine says, um, that it seemed like that we were revealing nothing, he was revealing nothing particularly new other than his own feelings at the time and his own experience, his individual experience as one of the members of the raiding party and the guy who shot bin Laden, you know, in the, in the head and uh, in the body and killed him. What was in a way more difficult was later on when he came out as, as Rob O'Neill on Fox News in a two-part documentary um, and people started to leak out like a week or so before. And I was getting hundreds of calls from around the country and around the world because, you know, Fox had promoted the hell out of this thing. And everybody was interested in who this guy was saying, is this your guy? Because I didn't name him in my story. And I had to explain to them each and every time, even though he's coming out, even though he's outing himself, even though there was an early leak to the Washington Post, which I think wasn't supposed to do it until Fox had done it or whatever the deal was, even though his name had appeared, and then he himself came out and said, I still had an agreement with him that I would not reveal his name. Now, he did give me permission to acknowledge that he was one and the same guy around the time that the Fox piece was broadcast. But a lot of people, including journalists who called me, well, mostly journalists were calling about this, didn't seem to understand that if you have an agreement with a source, that agreement exists until the source frees you from that agreement. That's what happened to our Balco guys. That's what happened in the case of the shooter. And I think that's what happens a lot in journalism. And so that was a much more sort of delicate, interesting dance. Yeah. I want to talk about one more example of this information that got out. This is funny because so far it's not that funny. That I was surprised. It's hilarious. That I was surprised did not uh, make more waves in terms of people deciding whether or not to share it. And that was the Donald Sterling case of a couple years ago, the owner of the L.A. Clippers has conversations with his girlfriend, much younger girlfriend, and he comes off. Yes, it did fill a a certain uh, stereotype, or not stereotype, a certain accurate portrayal we have about him. 
you know, he was already a guy who was seen as a racist person and a negative person, and the NBA wanted to do what they could to get him out. But nobody really discussed the fact that the information that brought him down and forced him to sell his team came from a phone call that was recorded by somebody else and then disseminated. So again, it's a case where our information is becoming more digital, more easy to share, and people are not really questioning whether or not it's worthy of being shared. I mean, you are a much more experienced man than I am, but even I know Yikes. that having a uh, a conversation with any girlfriend, even or any spouse, whether they're the same age as you or not, you say some things that you would not want to be put on the airwaves. Now, if you take that, turn it into yourself being about eighty something, and your girlfriend being in her early thirties, I mean that conversation, you're going to say whatever you got to say to get the job done there. And I don't think anybody in that situation would have a conversation that was happy, that they were happy to have shared. But nobody talked about that. All the people talked about was how terrible he was in this private conversation. Because people have accepted that the bar is low. I mean, TMZ has shows. I mean, talk about self-examining navel-gazing. TMZ has shows about the shows, about the information that they get. And I think they do it. I mean, they have, I'm sure they have their own lawyers, and I'm sure they've probably been sued, and maybe they've won, maybe they've lost. But they made a calculation that anything salacious is worthy of dissemination. End of story. Now, I personally believe that the more, the better. And, I, of course, I wouldn't like it if it's about me, which on occasion it has been. But the fact is, is that I am a free speech advocate, and I don't think you can have it both ways. So, you know, I think we put up with the low bar stuff. We put up with the salacious stuff if we have to in order to get the stuff that's valuable. Because we talked about Larry Flint the other week. You know, if Larry Flint hadn't done his obscene uh, cartoon about Jerry Falwell and they'd had a case that went to the Supreme Court where the Supremes uh, voted unanimously in Larry's favor, we wouldn't have had John Stewart. We wouldn't have had John Oliver. We wouldn't have had all these people doing satire. Because that made satire legitimate, even though the originating piece was pretty raunchy. So hypothetically, I decide to record one of our conversations when we're off air and you say something horrible. I'm not saying you would, but you could, that's for sure. And not about you. I wouldn't say no, anything no, to not you. About me. Horrible about you to you. No, let's just uh, – we'll narrow it to one of a thousand social groups or ethnic groups or racial groups around the world. Would you care if I put that – on the air. I would or hate it. That... I would hate it. I'm not saying I like it. I'm not saying I like this. I'm just saying that's the trade-off. That's the trade-off. We're in the Roman amphitheater portion of our cultural cycles where, you know, everything goes and the raunchier and the bloodier the better. I mean, look at the t shows on TV. What's the crown and throne and what's the name of Game of, of Thrones? Game of Thrones. You know, someone's getting their head chopped off every second. We've talked about, you know, has that been a model for ISIS? I mean— the stuff we're seeing, the stuff we're consuming is pretty base oftentimes. And, you know, that's the price we pay. All right. Well, I'm, I'm – I, You know, I w went to f uh, dinner with a friend of mine once. It wasn't you, but it could have been you. And we were talking as two guy friends talk. And it turned out that I'd butt-dialed my wife and she was listening to the entire conversation. And, you know, it, fortunately I have no secrets from my wife. So it's you know, it wasn't an issue. But – I heard this voice coming out of my back rear right butt, you know, saying, hey, I hear that every hey. week. <laughs> <laughs> we just don't want to know what it tells you, Dave. Right. Anyway, so that happens. If you're satisfied with your message, press 1. Huh? 
To delete and re-record your message, press 2. <gasps> no, 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 no! Delete, delete, delete! Message sent. I think that's a perfect time to move on to our big pain of the week. This is when we take things a little bit God, more personal. God about that. Okay. More right. personal than your your butt dials and the horrible things that your wife overheard during your yeah. dinner recently. Um, and take people sort of inside of our virtual steam room where we would have a conversation that we might have if we were off the air. And Are those we, do conversations. Do get virtually hot? I think virtual. so. I'm sweating okay. right now. Yeah, I'm me too. in anticipation. Me too. So. Why don't you start with what is your personal hurt of the week? My personal hurt of the week is uh, we went to visit my oldest son who's going to school in Massachusetts. And my wife likes to we – have, I have two young kids, started late in life, six and eight. And she uh, made a reservation to stay 45 miles from his school at a place called Wolf Lodge, which I think is some kind of chain, but I'm not sure because I can't tolerate these things. So here are the things that, I, that are seriously painful for me. Chlorine, I hate chlorine. I hate the smell of it. I hate the feel of it. I don't like chlorine, period. Crowds, I worked in Southeast Asia. I went to the funeral of Benino Aquino with a million people. I had the, you know, places where people would die at 10 o'clock at night but wouldn't fall over till 2 a.m. when the crowd dispersed. I hate crowds, and there were tons of crowds there. And cacophony, if you've ever been to one of these indoor parks, water parks, it's like everything is an echo. And believe me, when you get older, that's not helpful to hearing. Plus, it's irritating. Okay, so moisture, people, and social interaction are the big three you like to avoid. The big three I like to avoid. The good news about it was that, you know, I used to, like in California, I used to be a gym rat like all Californians. I paid way too much attention to sort of how I looked and what kind of shape I was in. That's long over. It's long gone, like decades ago. So... Wolf Lodge was one place where I felt comfortable taking my shirt off in the swimming pool because <laughs> I did because I look like everybody else. Nice. Everybody else looks like me there. Nice. We should broadcast the show from one of the lounges next to the pool. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of place. You couldn't hear anything. It would all be one big echo. I literally have not disrobed above my waist since about 1994. They don't make the right shirts for that either. Yeah, I do none of that. I, I, I shower in my, in my bathing suit. I'm very, very <laughs> uncomfortable. All right. What is your pain? All right. My pain is I, I went down to Los Angeles uh, last weekend, and that wasn't the painful part. I was seeing uh, two of our mutual friends, Zem and James Joaquin, win an award from it was called an Emma, the Environmental Media Award. It's something started by Norman and Lynn Lear, where they give awards to people in media and business that are doing good things for the environment. And all that was wonderful. But every time I go to LA, I am always like everybody who goes to LA that's not in the business. And you, of course, have had your brush with stardom. So you have much more experience with this than I do. But I okay. always feel uh, that I'm you know, less than, I'm just like a wannabe because what am I doing in this industry town without being part of the industry? And uh, so this event happened to be on the Warner Brothers lot in one of their theaters. So not only was I in Los Angeles feeling like I'm not part of this industry and I'm a nobody and I'm looking around to find stars, but I'm actually on a set. I was basically walking down a street in New York somewhere on the back lot of a lot in LA. Robert De Niro yelling at you, hey! Yeah, basically. But nobody, the only people yelling at me were security guards who were trying to become actors saying, no, you're not allowed to use that bathroom. You have to use the porta potty in the corner. <laughs> so I'm there feeling bad about myself already, but yet unable to prevent myself from looking around for stars because there were stars that were being honored that night. And there were, you know, 
a smattering of uh, slightly lower level stars wandering around the gathering after. So I, of course, was just spent most of my time, like everybody in LA who's not a star, looking for stars, and the stars are looking to see who's looking at them. But I realized something incredibly depressing while I was there. I realized that when you look at a celebrity and you see them or you notice them and you have that sort of look in your eye like, oh, I recognize you, they always have sort of a canned look where they sort of look at you and maybe nod or wink yep, or it's me. make some of an expression because it happens to them 300 times a day or more, right? They're right. used to it, so they sort of acknowledge that. Well, what I realized on this trip to L.A., was that people who in LA who only look like stars also have a prepared look. I saw a guy who looked a little bit like Ron Howard. Not a ton, but enough that somebody might say, hey, has anybody ever told you you look like Ron Howard? I glanced at him for a, a bit longer than a second, and I swear to God, he nodded and winked at me as if to say, yeah, I am that guy who sort of looks <laughs> like Ron Howard. And the depressing and hurtful part of this was yeah. – on the hierarchy, on the totem pole of Hollywood and celebrity in America, I am actually below that guy. No, no. See, you're, I understand your pain. I feel your pain. But the fact is, is that you're not part of that food chain. So you shouldn't feel so bad. You're separate from that food chain. It doesn't matter if you stare at celebrities, which everyone does. When a celebrity walks in a room, the molecules change and otherwise reasonable, rational people act irrationally. But so that's okay because you're just like everybody else. But you're not in that food chain, the acting celebrity food chain. However, you are in the industry because we're sitting here in front of microphones. Well, I think the phrase "you are just like everybody else" that, ladies and gentlemen, you've gotten a good idea of how <laughs> Phil makes somebody feel better. You've got to think for yourself. You're all individuals. Yes. I'm just riding high now. So I think, well, let's move out of the steam room and on to our final section of the day where we talk about the bottom of the news. We take a look at some stories that were weird or silly or amusing or horribly depressing, and we go back and forth and share a few of those. Phil, I'm going to start with one because okay. it was mostly just a headline that caught my eye that fit the theme of our show. Okay. And it fits something last week where we discussed the fact that Jay Carney of Amazon and Dean Baquet of the New York Times had a huge sort of debate about whether New York Times' story on Amazon was fair, and they held it on Medium. Well, this week there was a big story, a headline in an industry rag that said, old media says new media's numbers are bogus. <laughs> which I thought was sort of the last, we can't beat you, we can't get more traffic in these, so let's go with the, your numbers are bogus. But here's the great part. Somebody from new media hit back, and then somebody from old media hit again, and this whole thing again took place on Medium. Again, Evan Williams comes out the winner. My first item is about, guess what, hot dogs. And here's what they found out. They tested a bunch of hot dogs. And a new report found that 10% of the vegetarian hot dogs tested vegetarian hot dogs included chicken or meat or pork. But that's not all. A company that genetically tests the food, uh, they looked at 345 hot dogs. Some were labeled pork-free, which is important for people who are religious, but were found to contain pork. Others listed only one type of meat but included several others. But here is the kicker or whatever we call it these days. Even grosser, 2% of all samples were found to have traces of human DNA. <laughs> I mean, you know, 
I don't know why that's more disgusting than like rat hairs, but human the fact that these hot dogs have human DNA were was just horrifying to people. And uh, the other hot dog story while I'm on hot dogs is Costco, famed for their $1.50 hot dog and soda deal, got they move 80 million hot dogs a year. Maybe think of all the human DNA in those dogs. But some of the members of Costco were really pissed off because a few years ago, when Costco changed their hot dog, they went from one it purchased through suppliers to one it made on its own. So in other words, Costco shoppers are upset that Costco is making its own hot dogs. I'm not sure what that says, but I think it says something. Yeah, they might want to be a little bit more upset about the fact that they're participating in a cannibalistic act every time they go there. But I also had the hot dog story on my list, Phil. So that shows you that uh, I don't know if that's we're thinking or, alike. That's yeah. really terrifying. We're thinking alike. There needs to be only one of us next time. Okay, here we go. I found this story, it's probably a serious story, but I found it funny for some reason, and that is Guatemala has a new president. His name is Jimmy Morales. And his first sort of two things that he announced he was going to do immediately after being elected was that he was going to make sure every kid had a cell phone, which is, I guess, nice because he thought that it's sort of erasing some of the disparity among communities, but it's like the opposite of what every parent in America wants. Every kid gets a cell phone. And here's the other part that might not go well with uh, teachers unions in America. He wants all teachers to be strapped with a GPS unit so that he can be <laughs> sure that they're showing up on time. And the best part about this guy is he's always described in every publication I read as a comedian turned politician. He had no political experience. A comedian turned politician. It's basically the opposite of it's our the, political it's system. It's the Ben Carson opposite effect. Right. Instead, we have politicians that immediately turn into comedians whenever they're asked a question. Okay. Well, it's sort of along those lines. The kid of a director in Hollywood, since you were on Hollywood, turns out to be an al-Qaeda supporter named Abu Basr al-Britani appears on an online video, is actually the son of Hollywood veteran Patrick Kinney, who served as assistant director on such films as Braveheart, Indiana Jones, and The Last Crusade, and Rambo First Blood Part Two. Now, here's the question for you, Dave. Do you think that the kid of the director of, say, Remains of the Day would have gone to become an al-Qaeda fighter? I think the key is that he was the assistant director. <laughs> That's your f right. food chain point, yeah, right? That I you're just, depressed about. Seriously, that's basically like an absentee father is the, is the equivalent of the parenting world. But seriously, it does it does make you take with a grain of salt the little irritating things your kids might do. Like my son did not do some of his math homework as well as he could have the other night, and I got a little irritated. But when compared with running off and joining al-Qaeda or ISIS, I guess I got to give him a little bit of a break. Or eating hot dogs that contain human DNA. Right. Well— uh, as you know, I am married to a Samoan woman, so she's only her family is only about two generations away from cannibalism, which I occasionally will pull out during an argument. But now that I've eaten a veggie hot dog, forget about it. And, I, we're even. And she's she's really going to enjoy that you mentioned that. Um, we we had one that we both talked about about the South by Southwest Festival, the gamers going at each other violently. But I think we've run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> I just said that. I, uh, we don't have to have run out of time. What else you got? All right. I've only got one more. Okay. <laughs> All yeah. right. That was, that was smooth. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Okay. 
the la- the only one I have is that a couple episodes ago we discussed the fact that there have been many Americans not only shot by other adult Americans but also shot by toddlers right. as an example of the gun problem we have in this country. Well, I they took it one level further. I'm pretty sure this was in the Washington Post. In the past decade, this is really unusual. In the past decade, at least 10 Americans have been shot by dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy that you say that yeah. for last. And 40 percent of those crimes have taken place in the state of Florida. And it's always dogs who know their owners. I'm right? sure. I uh, mean, well, can you explain the opposable thumb aspect to that? I don't all? know what is it. Weirdly. Not only did 40 percent of them take place in Florida, but a majority of them took place on boats, which is weird. Like that's as far from my my experience as you can get. Going out on a boat is dangerous enough. Having a gun is dangerous enough. And being around an animal with teeth is dangerous enough. Combining them all seems like a horrible mistake. Who brings their dog on a boat? I don't know. People with guns that are well dangerous. If you you find out that these were slide shotguns. Let me know. Yeah. Because that'll really be terrifying. Yeah. Well, there are probably semi automatics in our country. I have three cats. If any of my cats got near a gun, my house would basically instantly turn into a scene, the Omaha Beach scene from <laughs> Saving Private Ryan. They would <laughs> not stop killing until everybody in the neighborhood was dead. And that's bad news for you because you live right up the street. Up the street. Yeah. If you hear shooting and meowing, I'll run for your my, life. I put on my body armor. Well, the visual of Phil running down the street of our neighborhood with his body armor Nothing seems like a— Nothing but body armor. Not, of course. That, I think that was a I'm given. I'm just going back to Great Wolf Lodge. Right. Here we go. Let's head back to Wolf Lodge and say goodbye to our faithful listeners. We appreciate you listening. Uh, if you like it, please spread the word. You can go to iTunes and give it a good rating if you want. We're coming at you from the Reveal News Studios in Emeryville. If you want to find out more about Phil and some of the great investigative reporting they're doing here, you can go to revealnews.org. If you want more from me, you can sign up for my newsletter or iPhone app at nextdraft.com. And a special thanks to the person who probably has the most grueling job other than Hillary Clinton in front of the Benghazi Committee for 11 hours, and that's Jim Briggs, our producer and sound engineer. Has to listen to the show at least twice, once in real time and once when he edits out and, the and incredibly— And three or four times in his dreams at night when he's having a nightmare. Right. We'll see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to What Hurts with Phil Bronstein of Reveal and Dave Pell of Next Draft. <laughs>